Yeah. Once read a book on pastoral care, um, said it was called something like, they smell like sheep. So uh, pastors should smell like sheep. It's a little freebie just for the start. Okay, so my name's Dale. Uh, I grew up in uh, Smithton, um, actually in Mellor, which is even more remote than Smithton. And Angela, my wife, was originally born in London in the UK, and she grew up in Hobart. And so we, we met once upon a time at a youth camp, because that's what happens in Tasmania. And one thing led to another, and now we're here. So uh, it's just a great honour and privilege to share with you this morning. It always is to do to have the opportunity to share into a, a local church. And mostly what I want to talk about today is relationships. So we'll get to that. Um, and hopefully it will just reinforce what I would trust that Russ and Mary would uh, be both preaching about and modelling Tim and Kate and others in the leadership here. Because it's central to God's heart. Um, as I was praying about this morning, I, ha- I had a picture, and it may relate to the prophetic word that came earlier about breakthrough. Um, and... I thought it was from God because it was ideas that I'd never had before and I often see things in pictures and this could be for more than one person. But the, the image that I had was this, this idea of, of guilt and shame being on somebody and uh, perhaps multiple people. And sometimes I think about the idea of, of a feeling of shame that people can have because like guilt is where you feel bad about something that you've done. And shame is where you feel bad about who you perceive yourself to be. And it's deeper. And you may have had things happen to you or things that you've done and you feel guilty. But the enemy has a way and even ourselves have a way and society has a way of sticking the boot in. And it can become shame. And if people get what psychologists might call a shame centre, it can be very destructive in the way relationships play out. And sometimes I think of shame in the context of something like a cloak that can come on people. And I've prayed for people before and I've seen like a cloak of shame on them. But I just had this other picture though where um, you know how it says in scripture that when Christ uh, went through the experience of the cross that the curtain in the temple which was between the holy place and the most holy place was rent or ripped and torn. And I didn't double-check this, but I've heard that the curtain was the thickness of a man's hand. And, you know, and there was an earthquake and it would have freaked out all the priests and the religious leaders of the day because a new covenant was being made and the old way where there was restriction and access to the throne was being broken. I just had this sense that I saw this, this cloak of shame and Christ ripped it and brought access back into his presence. So if you feel that resonates with you, then receive that. And just say, God, I want, I want this thing off me. I want shame off me. I want guilt off me. I want to have a healthy core. I want a core of your spirit and presence. The other thing I was reminded about was uh, many years ago, <clears throat> I heard this pretty epic sermon. It was a sermon that made everybody who heard it hungry. Because the guy in it was preaching about a restaurant. And he said, you know, sometimes you go to a restaurant and the restaurant's got this reputation that there's really good food at that place. So you might go to check that restaurant out, but, and I've done this in Sydney. There's this Chinese restaurant in the city that's got this little small eating space and people literally line up on the street and they take your orders and then you come in and you sit down and they feed you really fast because they've half prepared it before you get there and uh, I don't want to be racist or whatever, but at the end of the meal, pretty much as soon as you've swallowed the last bite, they come up and say, you go now, get out, because there's other people that want to get into this restaurant. 
And I just feel that that's what God is doing here. There's a rest, restaurant is happening. In the sermon that I heard, the guy went further as by means of illustration to say, you know, you go to these places where there's this really great food and it has this reputation. But when you go in, it's a little bit busy and maybe it's a bit dirty and it's exactly what is happening. You're not quite sure. Maybe they don't know your name straight away, but the food, the food is really good. And so he went on with this sermon and extrapolating it in the ways that I'm not going to do today because I've got to get on to what I'm saying. But I think there's food here. There's lush food here. And it's a good place to be. And it's not about an individual or individuals, but it's about the presence of God. Take that. Take that. So in the book of Romans, I love to talk about this. Whenever I go visit anywhere, it's always a privilege Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, he had a number of motivations for doing so. But one of them in chapter 1, he said, I long to see you, he hadn't been there yet, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, it's the only time in the Bible you read the words spiritual gift, to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I love that. And so when you come to visit a church and to minister and to represent God and to bring some sort of deposit, it's not a big shot coming in to the plebs but it's actually us all together, us being mutually encouraged. And that's what Paul understood, and he's one of the biggest shots ever, maybe, in the way that we think with our human hierarchies. But he was a humble servant of God. He said, I want to visit you guys, it's going to be awesome. I hope I can encourage you in some way, make you strong, but also that you'll encourage me, and I'll be made strong. And it's just this mutual edification society, so it's quite awesome. Just want to share with you briefly that about 11 days ago, my wife and I got home from Nepal and there was a bunch of us, five of us from our church that went. And I don't want to say too much about that, but I do want to say this, that I'm aware that in the last five weeks you've preached on healing, or Russ has and maybe others, has been what this church has been talking about. The church in Nepal, before we went, we were putting stats up, you know, so our, our church could pray about this trip and we're going to see what God might have us do there. And we put up that there are now 300,000 Christians in Nepal. We thought, well, that's pretty good, because in the 50s there was like 100 Christians. And so you see, oh, it's really growing. But when we got there, we found out that's wildly inaccurate. There are 10 times that. In a population of 30 million, there are 3 million Christians in Nepal. But the government suppresses that. So you can go Google and you'll find about 375,000, but it's not right. Because the church in Nepal is growing all the time, steadily and consistently, largely through God supernaturally healing people. And so a lot of people that we met had stories, either that they had received a significant healing, which breaks into their Hindu or Buddhist or very rarely atheist culture and mindset, and arrests them that, whoa, maybe there is a God. And sometimes on really significant healings, it breaks into family groups and cultures and even villages, and the gospel penetrates in, and the church is growing. The church is healthy. When we, we went on a 15-hour road trip to go 280 kilometres, we went down the road from hell, or to hell, no, it wasn't to hell, but we had a pretty rough ride on a road where I sincerely thought, I may die. So uh, I said to Angela at one point, I don't mind dying for the gospel, but I don't really want to roll down this bank <clears throat> to achieve it. So nonetheless, though, we went into this place 15 hours, we walked the last 4Ks in the dark down into this village in a place called Solakumbu. And we met this young couple that are pastors there who we we're probably going to partner with and support into the future, about 30 years old. 
They live in a community of 600 people on the hillsides in Nepal, a couple of hundred k's from Mount Everest. And so at one point, one, one of the mornings, the clouds opened up and then here's all the clouds, the mountains. And anyway, we're talking to them and we said, so, you know, you've got a church here. What else is going on? And they said, well, two hours down the valley further, there's another church. And two hours somewhere else, there's another church. And the gospel is not chained. It is rolling out through the valleys of Nepal and everywhere else around the world. And we're a part of it and it's exciting. And that's just like my little mini report to you. Be encouraged. God is up to stuff. And he's moving, and we can be a part of that as well. Oh, I haven't started my timer. That always happens in our church. But in this church, I'll take 10 minutes off. Perhaps. So, um, in nine days' time, I'll have been a Christian for 35 years. I got saved on the 18th of December in Edith Creek in a hippie house. There were two Pentecostals, a scary one and a more moderate one. Um, You know what I mean? And uh, a nice, bulging type of Christian. And he bothered me. And there was another guy who wasn't a Christian. And our plan that night, I've been joking with Tim about it, was that we were going to go uh, past a poppy field and I was going to roll out and get some poppies and we were going to boil them up and drink it and see what happened. Because that's how I lived. So I was a crazy, self-destructive, uh, on-drugs, suicidal young fella. I was 17-year-old at the time. And anyway, we sat around a table and they were trying to get us saved. And my friend down the other end, Scott, he wanted to become a Christian. I didn't really want to. So anyway, they said, let's hold hands. And I was pretty homophobic back then before I moved to Sydney. And uh, anyway, we held hands and I'm like, I don't like this. And they prayed a salvation prayer for Scott. And I thought, well, I'm just observing this. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to become a Christian. But as they prayed, I felt a demonic presence lifting out of my body. Now, I'd never been to church before, ever. I wasn't preconditioned to believe whatever about manifestations or the supernatural. But I knew one thing, that when this thing lifted up and then when they stopped praying, some of it fell back in. It's all like the best I can do to describe what happened. I knew that it wasn't a good thing, that this thing was still in me. And that night um, I uh, gave my life to Christ. And I'm telling this story because I want to get to the point about relationships. And on the 18th of December, 35 years ago, I became a Christian, um, but I felt quite alone. And so I was at work, and you know, you have your workmates, you got your druggy mates, and then you got your family circle. Those are the three circles I had, and I'd just become a Christian and met a few Christians. And one of them had given me a Bible. And anyway, that week I was thinking, what do I do on Christmas Day? I didn't like family events. Uh, Our family is pretty messed up, still is. And I didn't really like family events. And on the Friday, they said, are you coming out for drinks tonight? And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I was a bit confused. Can a Christian drink? I knew they shouldn't get drunk. And God had done this incredible change in my heart. But I was trying to find out what the heck is going on. And I thought, no, I don't don't want to go out with them. I don't want to get on the grog. And I thought, I can't hang out with my human natural mates that I grew up with, my my cousins and friends, because they'll be all chuffing weed and what have you. I don't want to do that. I thought, I can't hang out with the Christians because I just met them. You know, and I don't want to land at their place on Christmas Day. What do I do? And I drove home from work on that Friday after one of the workmates said to me, well, you know, if you won't come and have a drink with us at Christmas, then we'll wipe you. And it just, oof. And I'm thinking, whoa, it's tough. You know, how, how do I do this Christian thing? And um, <clears throat> I was driving home and I pulled the car up in Mellor on this gravel road, heading home, and I just started to cry. I was 17, messed up. I made it at one point. 
in that time of my life, I put a gun in my mouth, thought, maybe I'll blow my head off. And, you know, Jesus saved me. He'd done something quite radical in me. And I pulled the car up and I thought, someone give me a Bible. And uh, not this one, but one like it. And I thought, it was in the passenger seat, I thought, the answer's got to be in here. Surely the answer's in here. It's the answer to this loneliness that I feel. So I picked it up and I opened it. And you're not meant to do this, but you can do this. The Bible flopped open. No one told me you shouldn't do that. And the Bible flopped open and I, my eyes went straight to this verse. It said, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So, being a Christian is all about a relationship with God and each other. And relationships are central. And often if... You and I are witnessing to people. That's what we say to them, don't we? Oh, it's not about religion. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship with God. And we know that's true. And quite often we slip away from it in our own devotional life, don't we? We move away from the fact that Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you. Eternal life is, yes, it's length, but it's a quality and it's something other than. It's supernatural, but it's relationship. You've probably heard sermons if you've been around the church about how knowing Christ, the Greek word, is about intimacy and it's about relationship with not knowledge, as is the Hebrew thing behind knowing. Adam and Eve and Mary and Joseph, you know, you've probably heard these things, gnosis and yada, Greek and Hebrew. It's central. That's what Christianity is all about. Paul, near the end of his life, I'm not exactly sure when he wrote Philippians, but sometime near the end, most likely definitely in prison, when he's thinking about what's most important, he says, I want to know Christ. The power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, etc. At the latter end, it's about relationship with him, but also relationship with one another. The church cannot be anything but that at its core and its heart. And if the church moves away from it being relational, then we're moving into something else that man has produced. And so family is one of the greatest metaphors of the local church. Perhaps the most scriptures are written about church being body, which is an emphasis that everybody has a part to play in this family. And so the Father, Son and Spirit are revealed to us as relational beings. And we can't move away from this. And so if you're in a local church and the church starts to grow and get funky and together and happening, and so now we're doing things and programs and we're not emphasising relationship, well, we're on the pathway to destruction. And we are building a church that man builds rather than the church that Christ builds, which is built upon him and upon them, Father, Son, Spirit. It's a beautiful thing. I think a lot of you are here because this church is preaching this sort of thing. That's true, isn't it? And you may be a bit sick of some things that you've seen that don't reflect this. That's good. We just have to guard our heart that we don't get superior to other people because then we will blow it again. <laughs> because you've got to guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life and everything flows out of it. And I think, you know, God's got a, something's going on in Redemption Hills Church that's pretty significant. We've got to be humble and stay humble. Resist, you know, what ever might break down relationships within the kingdom of God in this city. So we've got to know Christ, the power of the resurrection. It's about intimacy with him, knowing him, making him known. NCMI talks about as a movement, as a, maybe it's ethos or vision. But also Jesus, when he was asked by a teacher of the law, these guys were always trying to trip him up. 
you know, he's trying to test him, it says in one of the versions of it. All right, so what's it all about? What's the most important thing? You've probably heard this before. Jesus said in reply to this guy, he says, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Elsewhere, strength. And I often say to people that if you do that, there's not much left. All of your mind, my intellect is woven into knowing God, not just in facts, but relationship. My strength, I put out my energy. I should be tired. We're talking about how we're tired. We've had a big year in the kingdom. You guys have had a big year. I'm tired. It's not a good place to make decisions when you're tired. I'm tired. We should be tired. I don't think tiredness stopped Jesus from going to the cross. And he's our example. There's not much left when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind, soul. But it's talking about relationship, isn't it? It's loving him. And what does that look like? Well, that's the first and the greatest commandment Jesus said. The second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on that, he said. Read somewhere where it's like two coat hooks in your foyer of your house. You come in, law, prophets, coat, hung on it, everything, everything. Love God with all your heart, strength, mind and soul. Well, you don't have to tell too many guys you should give up porn because you know that that's wrong. Guys should know how to treat their wife. Wives should know how to relate to their husbands. We should know how to relate to our kids. We love God. We put relationships as such a primary emphasis. We should know how to relate to one another in a local church context because we love God and we love people. In our church, when Tim and Kate was on the eldership with us, we decided that maybe we should have a vision statement. I've largely been opposed to the idea of vision statements and cat's phrases and trying to get people funkily aligned around a little pithy saying. But because I think there's this, isn't there? You don't really need one. But we thought, nonetheless, let's have one. <laughs> it's abiblical. It doesn't mean it's wrong, but you don't want to camp around it too much. Unless it's this. So we thought, well, what other... Vi- we don't want a vision statement that Tim and Kate and Dale and Angela and the other couple that were with us at the time conjure up to be a funky marketing strategy, but let's go and see what Jesus says the vision of the local church should be. What is Christianity about? It's essence. Love God, love people. Ah, oh, let's align with that and communicate that and we'll do well. It's awesome. Relationships. Recently, even though I look so young, I became a, a grandparent. And uh, on the first day, my daughter, who is living with us, brought her little bub home. I was sitting in the office and they handed Eleanor to me. And they, she sat on my chest. And for the next two or three hours, I watched some dumb show on Netflix. And she slept. It was an epic moment. And there was this bonding thing, you know, you read how the mum should have the baby on the chest straight on her bed. And I'd look at that, a new age, whatever, I don't know. But this really happened to me. And she sat there, and because she's this precious little bundle, well, I didn't move. And at the end of that two or three hours when I handed her back, my arm was sore. And I thought, the pain begins. Because when you invest in relationships, when you love, you can get hurt physically in this case, but you invest into people because this is what the kingdom is all about, loving God and loving people. Sometimes people, there's a leadership couple in our church, know that Tim and I are close, so we're like brothers, we are. And one day someone said to me, how do we get a relationship with you guys like we've got with Tim and Kate? 
I said, well, stick around for 10 years and go through some hell with us and you'll form relationships that run deep because the kingdom of God is all about relationships. And right now there's an element of honeymoon here probably. Do you know what? The honeymoon doesn't have to stop. We had a honeymoon merging of two churches that were 50 each and then a third one joined and rah. The honeymoon went on for years. In marriage, if we always think, oh, after the honeymoon, it's going to suck. Well, maybe that might deter a few people from getting married, but actually the honeymoon can continue. It's possible if we give relationships the primary emphasis and the scriptural, uh, we approach them scripturally, we can maintain a great healthy relationship. Last night we were sitting around uh, eating pizzas at Tim and Kate's place and something came up about cookies, biscuits, cookies, you know, American one. And Tim and I both started singing C is for cookie at the same time. And it was like, this is weird, man. Because we're deep guys. We're really deep guys. And, uh, you know, and we look even more embarrassing. Kate said, oh, one flesh. And we're like, ooh, this is creepy. This is creepy. But usually, but that's not that. But it's shared relationship. You know, how the, the older couple, they finish each other's sentences. In our case, we sing the same Sesame Street song. <laughs> so you're getting an insight into how we are in our mind. Poor Tim. He said, why, why is Dale here? <laughs> right. So we are made in the image of a relational God. That's really important. In uh, Genesis, where God, you know, he made all the things. And then he says, let us, us... Not let me, let us. Elohim, it's plural, it's a nod to the Trinity right there, Genesis 1. Let us make man or mankind in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish in the sea. So God made them, created them, mankind, male and female, he created them. A, community, a communal God made a community of people. And we're made in the image of God and we shouldn't be shocked that he is relational at his core because so are we. Some people would say that the fact that God is a triunity is an evidence, uh, sorry, the fact that relationships are so pivotal to humanity is an evidence of the triunity of God. Does that make sense? Because God creates everything in his image. And so physics, biology, cosmology, they all work in relationship. We can talk about our moon, and our moon is an entity, but it isn't in relationship to this earth and the rest of the solar system. Everything that God has made reflects the creator, and the creator reflects God. But it's broken because of sin. And so God is a relational being. He's made us relational, but a lot of our relationships are broken because of sin. And that's what the gospel is, isn't it? Because if I have a falling out with my wife, Angela, sin, sin is where you do your own thing instead of God's thing. Don't touch that tree. Well, I'm going to touch that tree. Um, and so when we do stuff in our way instead of God's way, we violate his laws and a rift happens relationally. And so if I sin against Angela, talk badly to her, whatever, put her down, well, I have to restore the relationship which I'd never do. You've got to restore relationship through asking for forgiveness. And we know this is true, and that's what the heart of the gospel really is, that God came um, to reconcile us through Christ to himself to deal with that broken relationship because we've all fallen short of his glory. 
Relationships are so pivotally important. If you hear a sermon on the Trinity, anyone heard a sermon on the Trinity in church on a Sunday morning? There's one, maybe two, three. I see that hand. So not too many, and maybe some of you have in Sunday school. Usually when in the church we have a sermon on the Trinity, it's all about defining it, that it's, oh, there's three, but there's one. And we can't really explain it. It's something like water, semen, ice, maybe an egg. And, you know, most of our illustrations, they go to one extreme or the other. They emphasise the three parts, shell, yolk and white, which is heresy, by the way, just to let you know. Um, <laughs> tripartism. Or the other side, where water, steam and ice, same thing appearing in different modes. That's called modalism. That's another heresy, so you can't use either of them. <laughs> Oh, like a human, we have a body, soul and spirit, that's what God's like, he's made us in his image, there's three parts to him, there's three parts to us. No, 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 no. It's more mysterious, it's deeper, it's bigger than that. But what we do in the church is, I think, we try to define the triune God, three, one, maths, mystery, rah, and we miss, perhaps the most important thing, is the gap between the three and their relationships. I don't think it's heresy to say this, or sacrilegious. Father, Son and Spirit are best mates in the Aussie vernacular. They are best mates for all eternity. And in the church we say co-eternal, co-equal, exact same substance, and it's right to define the difference, but if that's all you think about, you're missing the point. So he's made us a relational being, he is, he's made us relational. We should not be shocked or surprised at how important and central relationships are to him. So I want to share with you one good illustration, I think, about what, how we can express the Trinity. And that's by saying the Trinity is like love. And that shouldn't surprise us because God is love. Because love, can love really exist without another person? How do you express it? Well, it can't. So love is from one person, like my, myself, to my wife. And there's an expression of love. Now we've got two people, but love is between us. But one of the highest forms of love is when two people who love one another in love, not necessarily husband and wife, love a third person. That's what the church should be doing, you know, loving the third person, existing for someone else outside the circle and extending the kingdom I think, you know, in our togetherness, in our network of churches, we talk a lot about king and kingdom. Surely the kingdom is most perfectly expressed in Trinity. You know, Romans says that the, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, and that's talking about defining doctrine. And I'm into doctrine, by the way. I'm not light on doctrine. It's not about what you think about whether a Christian should have alcohol or eat meat offered to an idol or, or whatever, but it's about righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And up to very recently, till a young elder in our church preached on this, taught me something, I thought that was about, you know, the peace I have and the righteousness I have and the joy I have in the Holy Spirit. It's a good Pentecostal interpretation of Romans, whatever it is, the verses. But the context is between people. And part of why Paul wrote Romans, wrote Romans was to address the racial conflict between Jew and Gentile. Issues of superiority and pride, and I'm better than you, and I'm different to you. I've got the heritage, you don't. He said, no, 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 no. Come on, guys, kingdom. 
And the kingdom must be expressed in your relationships, just like it is in the Trinity. Just like it is in the Trinity. This has enormous applications for society. There's a book on the Trinity called God for Us. And in it, the author puts forward this idea that the Trinity is our social agenda. Things like equality, things like love, things like respecting each other, things like lifting up people who are poor and are broken, helping people with mental illness and with financial problems and lifting them up, trying to find a unity in God. It's um, applications in marriage, the Trinity. Full equality, but different roles. In the church network that we're a part of, we are, we are complementarians, most of us. We think that there is headship in marriage. And sometimes that makes people run out the door. Oh, the church doesn't have women elders, per se. And it's like, ah, oh, they must be oppressive of women. No, we have a, a, trying to wrestle with scripture that says, well, God is the head of the son, the son is the head of the church, as the man or slash the husband is of wife. But we don't want to release, I don't, sorry, we don't want to suppress women. How could that reflect the Trinity? Is there unhealthy man's hierarchy in Trinity? There's not. It's absolutely equal, but different roles. And I don't want to fight you over that. It's just how I see it, and I try to wrestle with it, and we try to work it out. We've been married 30 years in January, February. You know, men, I've just encouraged you all. Women, I've just reinforced what you think about all men. And um, it's been good, though. (laughs) And I do think there's sometimes there's a time to make a call and make a decision. Uh, But how many times have I played what we call a submission card? Maybe three times in 30 years? If you're playing that card all the time, you don't understand the way the kingdom is meant to be. Not at all. I mean, Ephesians 5.21 before 22 says, submit to one another out of fear for Christ. That's your basis. Anyway, it has great bearing, this thing about relationships and trinity, on leadership. You think about Father, Son, Spirit. Right now, Christ, he's in the preeminent position according to Scripture, yeah? Because of what he went through, the death, burial, resurrection. We're preaching the gospel of Jesus. The Spirit comes and makes much of him. And the Father's in heaven. According to Scripture, he's the head of the Trinity, but he's incredibly cool with the Son getting so much emphasis and profile. It would be like Russ moving into the back and letting other elders seem like they're the guy's actually running the church and he's so secure he's cool with that and the other guys who might be more prominent are not trying to take over there's just this beautiful harmony in the kingdom of God between them and it's not restricting anything it's actually enhancing one another incredible applications in scripture there's about a hundred one another's most of them are about three things unity Love, humility. That's the kingdom. Aspects of it for sure. That's what's in the Trinity. Whenever you preach a sermon, you should say, when you're preparing it, you should say, not when you preach it, before you preach it, you say, well, so what? What's the application? I hope there's already been some applications. But I wrote down seven things quickly and then I'm done. Christianity is all about relationships. We love God, we love people. It's never going to change from that. 
This means things like Matthew 18 where it says, go see your brother or sister who you've had a falling out with. You've got to do that. It's a not negotiable thing because God is so committed to relationships. So many apparently mature Christians will not do that. We need to do that. We need to ensure that as far as is possible for us, we live at peace with all men. Spiritual warfare includes relationships. You know that verse in um, 2 Corinthians where it says, we are not unaware of the devil's schemes? I used to think, oh, that's about how deliverance works and maybe territorial spirits and, ah, oh, we should look into that. And legitimising, looking into some strange doctrines. Context is about forgiveness. It's addressing the issue of the guy in Corinthians 1, remember, who was kicked out for being with his stepmother or something like that? And then after they kick him out, they should have kicked him out or addressed it, I should say, not kicked him out, addressed it as a church discipline issue. They wouldn't do that. And then when Paul said, you should address it, then they wouldn't receive him back when he genuinely repented. And then Paul says, be careful. It's spiritual warfare, the way you conduct your relationships. Fourthly, if relationships are so central, it means that family is a, if not the, primary expression of a local church. Fifthly, as a church gets bigger, whether it be the leadership or the congregation, we should get relationally tighter and functionally looser. But most of society, and I think church culture, does the opposite. It gets functionally tighter and relationally looser. When we do that, we are degrading the church that Jesus is building. Friendship evangelism, some people put it down. Why would you put it down? It's so important that we actually have relationship with people if we want to win them to Christ, that they know who you really are. And the last thing I want to say, I think you know that what I'm saying is right, that relationships are so central. Can I just encourage you to give yourself to it? Give yourself to him, to them, and to these, and to those. Because that's what the kingdom is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son. And we're thankful to you. And God, I thank you for this church and what you're doing here in it. And I thank you, God, that you are at work shaping us into your image, fixing and restoring relationship first with you and then with one another and into the future. And I pray, God, that you would just pour your spirit out more and more onto this local church. And that, God, that in this place, the food would be good. And relationships would be healthy with you and with one another. And I pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Bless you guys. I'm going to hand back to Russ. Thank you, dear. Why don't you stand? We're going to be dismissed and have some coffee and tea. And time, you know, but ministry doesn't end because we've dismissed. The Holy Spirit doesn't immediately fly away. And we've chased them away now because we said we're dismissed. There's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to continue to minister to one another, even as we talk with one another. But if you actually need someone to pray with you, there'll be some folks here in the front who would love to uh, pray with you as everyone else has toward the back.
but if you've got something as you're praying for someone, you can do that where you're seated as well. You don't have to come up front. Lord, we're so grateful that everything you've done has redeemed us to you. And because of that, we can actually have godly relationships with one another. Lord, we recognize that it starts with you. And we're grateful for that. Thank you for Dale and Angela's input and ask that you would just continue to minister and speak to us and use us in opportunities this week to share your goodness and love with people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have children, would you go get them first before you have coffee and tea? Uh, they, they really appreciate that. They love your kids, but they love you to have them. <laughs>